Edmonton's historian laureate Chris Chang and Phillips here, and that's no bunk. A mouthful? Maybe. But now I'm going to give you an earful, see? Yeah, I've cracked a tough egg or two in my time. The snow goose case, the absent gravestone, the clan query. The trickiest case yet, though, would have to be, let's find out how we know what's true. It's a live podcast taping, so I've got no place to hide, see? And neither does the truth. Fellow truth sleuths, or panelists, if you will, Dr. Keisha Supernan, Dave Cornay, Sarah Hoyles, and I'll put the screws on questions of fact-checking, accuracy, and truth. Train your peepers on the needle.ca for the rest of the rap on Let's Find Out How We Know What's True. 2.30 at the Needle Vinyl Tavern, 10524 Jasper Avenue, on Saturday, March 11th. I mean now! Scram! Got your tickets? Okay, let's get back to the show. So I, I really seriously believe he, he deserves a monument, a marker on his grave, and I hope that this research will help me get that for him. I'm Chris Chang and Phillips, Edmonton's Historian Laureate, and this is Let's Find Out, a monthly podcast about the history of Edmonton, Alberta, or Amiskwichi Waskahikan, on Treaty 6 territory. Each episode, I find people with questions about local history, and then we find out the answers together. This episode, The Absent Gravestone, a quest that started when Sheila Thomas noticed something odd in the Evanston Cemetery. It's a story about murder, theft, how we remember, and how the histories we dig into can become a part of us. We begin on a slushy path into the Evanston Cemetery on a foggy Sunday morning in February. Looking for the crypt. There's only one crypt. You I, got your own bench? I remember that bench. <laughs> okay. Okay. Sheila Thomas and I met at the John Walter Museum's tea party last summer. She is an incredibly dedicated history enthusiast and family genealogist. I told Sheila about this podcast and she immediately had a question for me. But when I ran into her a few months later, she said, forget that, I've got a much better one. It's about Frank Beavers. A while back, I was on a kick, uh, learning all I could about suffragettes. And Emily Murphy being one of them, very important one, I went to the city archives and looked up her handwritten notes while she was the uh, magistrate, uh, trying court cases. And it's kind of difficult to read her handwriting. Back then, you didn't have a stenographer, so she was writing notes as she was conducting the cases. And there is an item here, uh, talks of uh, the lady she was trying, Nora Holt. Uh, she mentions that she was the, written here, the Amor. Paramour. Um, of a man that was shot, his name is Zappler, was shot by James Arthur Campbell and killed in a gambling row. And I thought, that's interesting. So I looked up those two names and I come across... Frank Beavers, Constable Frank Beavers. I looked him up and I found out something very interesting. Uh, in the Henderson's directory, he, he's listed as being employed as a janitor at the court, at the uh, police headquarters downtown. Not mentioned, he's not mentioned as being a police officer, so why is he attributed to being the first Edmonton police officer killed in the line of duty in in our city. 
there, there's a list that the Edmonton Police Service keeps of the officers that have been killed in the line of duty, and Frank Beavers is listed as the first police officer killed in the line of duty in Edmonton. Um, but yeah, you noticed an interesting thing. Yeah, that, that, that he wasn't... What on earth <laughs> is he doing getting shot in yeah. the line of duty if he's just the janitor? Oh, and it goes on from there. So interesting. Just before the end of the Great War, so instead of the city, well, I'm sure the city was still in celebration, but they're they're also in mourning for, you know, this great travesty. And I'm getting emotional as if I know him. (laughs) I did get to know him over, you know, reading about his life and his wife and... The Edmonton Bulletin actually followed Frank Beaver's story fairly closely back in 1918. Sheila found old Bulletin articles in the Peel's Prairie Provinces collection documenting Frank's murder and the hunt for the suspect, Joe Cameron, and then the suspect's eventual trial. That's how she found out where Frank was buried. Because one of the articles mentioned Frank Beaver's funeral procession to the Edmonton Cemetery. The Edmonton Cemetery is the one near Oliver Square, just across the street from Iconoclast Coffee. So Sheila got to the cemetery used the crypt nearby as a landmark, and counted the rows to find where Frank Beaver's grave was. She read the names on the stones nearby, but when she got to Frank Beaver's plot, there was nothing there. There's the crypt. Now we have to count from there. The crypt is in row 17. So, if we count... That was 17, then we have two rows of 25, two rows of 33. Sorry. Okay, so that means... And that should be Earl Earl Meredith. Meredith. Can you read that? Yep. I see an M. And that looks like a D. Do you agree? Yeah. Meredith. (laughs) It's a little difficult to see. All right. So right across from Meredith... Frank Beavers should be in this spot and there's no marker and that's what we're going to try and rectify I hope. Her methodology was sound. If you go into the City of Edmonton website you can search by name for anyone who was buried more than 25 years ago. There are detailed maps of the cemetery sections and the plot numbers. This was definitely the spot. As it happens I found in the Edmonton archives a list of expenses the Edmonton Police Commission did pay for Constable Beaver's funeral. But in this list of uh, expenses, a grave marker is not mentioned at all. There's a casket, the box, the hearse, the taxi, the sedan, but, and the grave. So Sheila had two big questions. Constable Frank Beavers was the first Edmonton police officer to be killed in the line of duty. We know where he is buried now, but why is his grave unmarked? Why doesn't Frank Beavers have a gravestone? And could the city put one up? Sheila, this is quite extraordinary, the extent to which you've taken this on, because I think if if most people that I knew, if they encountered the kind of um, gap in the records that you've encountered, they would they would sort of just observe it. But you've taken this on as, as kind of a, a 
something more personal. What, why is that? Why does this feel personal to you? That being killed in any circumstance is like the ultimate, especially if you're doing it in the capacity of protecting the citizens of your city, willingly going to help, and you're killed because of it, it should be acknowledged a little better. I'm not, I'm not blaming the police service because it turns out it seems like his wife moved back to England. I'm not exactly sure, but she's not mentioned anywhere. I can't find her in Edmonton after 1919. And there was some speculation that she was going to move back to the old country. And um, perhaps she didn't have the money. I don't know what happened to her after that. Um, it was probably just too expensive to, to uh, have a stone erected once she was gone, so. Yeah, okay. So our quest is to find out why Frank Beavers um, has no marked gravestone. So and can we get one? Can we get one? Okay, so let's find out. Before we left, I told Sheila I had to stand silently for a minute just to capture the sound of the graveyard on tape. I was standing there holding my microphone into the foggy winter air, and then she did something I did not expect. She bent down into the slush at Frank's gravesite. Beavers. Two E's, but through my research, it's been spelled several different ways. My uh, beavers. Next time I'm here, hopefully there'll be a real marker. You just traced his name in the slush. I like it. Now, before I met her, Sheila had done a lot of digging to find out more about Frank's life. She actually put together a folder for me of printouts and photocopies from the City of Edmonton archives. I mentioned she'd dug into her own family's genealogy. so. She applied those skills to gather records from England that seemed to tell a bit of Frank Beaver's story. Sheila found census and baptismal records for a Frank Beavers born in 1866 or 1867 in Yorkshire, England. More census records of Frank's family as he grew up. A Church of England marriage record of Frank Beavers marrying Maria Farrow. A Church of England baptismal record from 1901 for Frank and Maria's child, Hilda Marie Beavers. A census record of Frank, Maria, and Hilda M. Beavers in 1901, listing Frank's profession as a grocer shopkeeper, and a death index registration for Hilda Marie Beavers, also in 1901. Age at death, zero. But wait, there's more. Sheila found a Mr. and Mrs. F. Beavers on a passenger list from England in 1911, spelled now Beavers like the animals, but the same birth years as our Frank and Maria Beavers from Yorkshire. Mr. F. Beavers, occupation grocer. They arrived in Quebec on the vessel Laurentique. Then, in Edmonton's Henderson directory of addresses and names, she found a Frank Beavers worked as a janitor at Westward Ho College in 1913. Then in 1916's Henderson directory, F. Beavers was listed as a janitor at the police court building. And the same in 1917, one year before he died. I'm not a genealogist, but I think that is an amazing chronology and a very compelling story of Frank Beaver's life. I think at this point, Sheila deserves a round of applause for this work. But there were some questions that she couldn't answer. 
and for those, we headed to the Edmonton Police Service headquarters, downtown, not far from City Hall. Jeff Hallwood. Sheila Thomas. Good job. I'm Chris Chang and Phillips. Hi, Chris. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? Good. Sergeant David Hawthorne and Jeff Awood have been working on history projects to mark the Edmonton Police Service's 125th anniversary in 2017. Sergeant David Hawthorne, uh, presently working in our charge port management unit, but I'm in charge, co-commander of our historical unit. Okay, and I'm Jeff Allwood with uh, EPS Corporate Communications, and I work in the digital media unit where I produce videos and uh, historical comic books on EPS events. What's your job title, Jeff? Uh, it's a really sexy title, uh, Audio Visual Producer 3. <laughs> when I reached out to the communications department at the police service, their communications advisor, Carolyn Marin, arranged for us to meet Jeff and Sergeant Hawthorne, and they were very, very interested in the research that Sheila had dug up. They mentioned that he had no children. And I believe his wife moved back to England 1920-ish. So she never really got around to putting up a marker. Putting up a permanent marker. Yeah. Now that's interesting because I didn't know he had a, a wife. So you've already heard that Frank Beavers was the first police officer killed in the line of duty in Edmonton. But I wanted to hear a fuller telling of this story than what we found in those Edmonton Bulletin articles. Jeff Awood was good enough to take a stab at it. I mean, it starts on October 16th, 1918, and there's three men playing. I'm, I'm going right back, so the events leading up there. So three men, Sam Zappler, Curly Krause, and a man named Cameron, they're playing poker, they're drinking. They play all through the night, again, drinking heavily. Uh, Cameron obviously loses a lot of money in the process. They stop at six in the morning. Um, they go have a bite to eat at a cafe. Then they decide, hey, we're going to go for a joyride. So Cameron and Zappler hop in Zappler's car. And then uh, Krauss follows behind in his. And as Zappler and Cameron are driving, Cameron all of a sudden pulls out a gun and demands the money that he's lost in the gambling back. Um, the car stops. Uh, Zappler attempts to wrestle the gun away from Cameron. Cameron shoots Zappler twice in the lower body. Uh, Zappler falls out onto the roadway. Cameron gets out, and this sort of tells you the type of person he is, uh, gets out and casually takes the money away from uh, Zappler there and a uh, diamond ring as well. And I mean, it was $650, so back then that was a lot of, lot of money. Uh, fortunately, there was a witness to all of this and the witness went over to try and ha help Zappler after Cameron had left and also Krause had left too. Um, unfortunately, Zappler would eventually die in hospital, uh, but he was able to identify his killer and everything. So the police found out where Cameron's hotel room was, the Northern Hotel, and so the chief constable at the time, the chief of police, uh, Chief Hill, he sends out Inspector Haig, Sergeant Kelly, and the janitor at the time, who was probably deputized, uh, Frank Beavers, to go to the hotel. What does deputized mean in this context? Um, probably Dave is better to answer that question there, but I'm thinking he was given the authority uh, as a police officer. It, it, that would probably be pretty close to it uh, for the 
recognizing that only for a moment uh, in time perhaps, you know, for the period of this investigation, that he would have the authority as a police officer, have the right to detain and arrest people and with the understanding more than likely that once this was over, he would return to his uh, regular duties, but uh, he would, for that time period, he would have all of the full authority of a police officer. It sounds like kind of a Wild West thing, like we're gonna go round up that guy who's just shut up the saloon and we just gotta get a bunch of guys. And is that kind of the situation it seemed like that day? I, I think so, I mean Edmonton back then was a very different city from Edmonton today. Um, law enforcement was very different back then than it is today, obviously. Um, you certainly didn't have the Charter of Rights or any other, you know, number of things. It was much more a freewheeling uh, community back then. So it wouldn't be out of the question that they deputize Frank Beavers and, as Dave says, Frank is along for, along for the ride. And, I mean, when they get to the hotel where they think Cameron is, uh, you know, they have Frank Beavers just watching the back door, obviously to keep him safe and sound. So they go up to the hotel room and knock on the door and no one answers and they decide, the two police officers decide to go out on the fire escape, see if they can get a look inside the uh, hotel room to see if he's there. Well, so while they're going around the fire escape to look in, Cameron, who's been hiding in the room, he runs out the door, runs down the back stairwell, and of course, who does he run into but Frank Beavers? I mean, we're never going to be sure exactly what happened, but we do know that Cameron pulled out this gun, which he had already used to shoot someone else, and he shot Frank Beavers twice in the chest. Um, the other officers hear, hear the shots. They run down there. They find Frank Beavers. He collapses. Uh, a doctor happened to be passing by at the time, and the doctor later testified that the shots were so so recent that Frank Beaver's shirt was actually still burning from the, the gunpowder, you know? And so the officers, I mean, they saw Cameron racing away down the street, but they weren't able to, to catch him. And what eventually happened is Cameron, I think, spent one more night in Edmonton. Then he went down to Leduc, um, or Leduc area, and became a part of a farm crew that was doing some work around there. The, the crew members were a little suspicious, though, because Cameron, yeah, Cameron's hands weren't... Uh, they were soft. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Like he's not done any work in a long time. And then even the way I think he dressed, too, sort of made them suspicious that, well, this isn't a guy who's dressed to do farm work. And the next day or that night, the local newspaper had a picture of Cameron, you know, wanted by the police. And Cameron to sort of you know, say, hey, it's not really me, came over to them and said, hey, look, that guy really looks a lot like me. So that just raised the crew's suspicion even more. So they notified the local constable, and Cameron was eventually arrested quietly. And uh, he was brought back in 1919, uh, two-day trial. He was found guilty of the murder of Frank Beavers and Sam Zappler. And uh, justice was a little swift back then. So about five months later, on April 23rd, 1919, he was uh, hung in Fort Saskatchewan, and that brought, brought the you know, sad story of uh, Frank Beavers to a, a conclusion as far as that goes. I, before I was reading this, I did not know for sure that people had been hung in Edmonton, but that was, that was a regular type of sentence? Yes, if, I mean, for murder, certainly. If, if you, uh, you know, reading through the history of the EPS there, it's not uncommon that, yes, the murderers end up, you know, well into the uh, 40s, I mean, maybe even the early 60s, where 
yeah, you were you were tried and found guilty, and you were you were hung. So that detail about the calloused hands stuck out to you. <laughs> yes, I read through every article, you know, a few times. So I'd love to make a movie out of it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one thing that strikes me when I'm hearing this story is how I would have felt being like deputized for a day, having a badge thrust at me or whatever, and being told like, okay, we're going after a suspected murderer. Guard the door. What does that say to you about what type of person Frank was that he took that on? I, I don't know. Sheila, what, what, what does that say to you? Oh, boy. There was an article. I'm sorry. It's going to take me a little time to find it, but I, I found an article that describes how they felt about him. At 52, uh, that's... Back in the early turn of the century, people didn't live. I mean, the average life expectancy was probably around 65 or 64 or something. So he's getting to be a fairly old fellow. And to be pressed into service to go hunt down a wanted man, that to me, that speaks of his character. It's like, yeah, I'll, I'll go. That's, uh, he's, he's a lot like the members we have today where uh, we see the pictures of a, of a shooting and we got a thousand people running that way and we got four police officers running in and everybody else is running away and that speaks to his to me that speaks to his, his character that he's willing to yeah I'll go this is how he is described uh, the murder of beavers particularly has inspired the whole force with the determination to get the criminal at any cost the popularity of the victim his inoffensive and sterling character has made every man of them to resolve that the slayer shall not get away. This is from the Edmonton Bulletin article the day after Frank was shot? Yes, correct. Plus, um, poor uh, Frank suffered from uh, a long bout of typhoid fever and was not very strong physically. Plus, you can see by his his portrait in the, in the paper, he was wearing very thick glasses, and he was mentioned as being very short-sighted. So not your average, you know, you don't, there's no way he would be a bona fide member of the police force. Saying that he was a janitor for three years and then, you know, and give him arms, I would hope that we, even if we were hard-pressed today, I would hope that we wouldn't press our civilians into service and throw a duty belt and body armor at him and say, let's go. But this is 1918, very different world, um, and you know you you had. I'm trying to think in 1918 how many police officers there would have been in the city. Some of the later the pictures we have of a 1915 inspection show we probably had around 40 to 45 members. So we might have had 50 in 1918, and that's the entire complement. So circling back to the original question. What can we say about why it is that there's this gravesite with no stone? I had a few theories. It was the end of the Great War. There wasn't a whole lot of money for extras like that. Uh, plus, you know, his only family, his wife, probably couldn't afford it. And then she went back to England and it just got forgotten. Uh, just today, and I, I was running a little bit late coming here, is that I went in search of his grave. And tromping around the wet ground, I've come to that same conclusion. And there are a lot of headstones in that area that are old and likely have, have fallen into disrepair and have been removed. So there may have been some type of a marker, even a, 
maybe a sandstone or limestone marker that over time has deteriorated to the point where it was removed. So I wrote myself a bunch of notes and one of my notes is, okay, we need to have a marker. We have uh, a great number of our other members. I'm very fortunate that in the line of duty, we've had around nine members die in the line of duty. Uh, but there seems to be a real dearth about Constable Beavers. And him, him being the very first member to die in the line of duty, I was very surprised to see that we don't have any parks named after him, we don't have any streets named after him, we don't have any monuments, and his grave is, to me, just discovering today, is unmarked. So that's clearly something that uh, when I was kind of given this project and worked on it today as quick as I could, because I was, last weekend, sorry, I was in Cuba, oh. <laughs> or the Caribbean, so yeah, so I didn't have much time, but uh, I was tromping around at wet ground today going, I can't believe we don't have a marker. I, I can't be the first police service member or anybody to go looking for this, but maybe. That's one of these things, one of these people in our history that I think that the, we need to, as the Edmonton Police Service, we need to keep track of it. We need to know that 50 years from now, Dan Woodall's grave is known that in another 50 years that Ezio Ferron's grave is known, that Jack Groats or Malcolm Jack's grave is known, that uh, some of them no notable, certainly anybody who died in the line of duty as a police service, we should know where they're buried and, if, and are, is it marked. And if it's not marked and we exhaust all of our avenues looking for family and uh, finally exhaust that and there's nobody else left, we should be taking care of that. So for those of you who've been listening to Let's Find Out for a while, you know this is not my first time featuring someone who wants a public marker put up in Edmonton. And that last one didn't end up going all the way. Even though she didn't ultimately present her idea to the Edmonton Historical Board, I'm glad Rebecca Jade approached me with her plaque idea, because it's raised a ton of awareness about Edmonton's history of white supremacy. But I wanted to feel more confident this time that at least the ball was rolling by the end of this episode. And also I felt like Sheila had carried this weight for Frank for literally years now, as if he was her own brother. I wanted to know for sure that someone else would help take the weight. So just thinking of like, what's next? Who would take that on now within the force? Well, I wrote myself a list here. So it's gonna be Edmonton Police Service should be first. And this is my opinion, Edmonton Police Service if not, then the Edmonton Police Association. If not, then the City of Edmonton. If not, then the Edmonton Police Foundation. And if not, then we go to private campaign to get a proper weather, you know, a marble or granite so that it will weather the next couple of centuries so that we will always know where Constable Beavers is buried. Are you going to be knocking on a door after we leave here today? Quite possibly, because I, when I left there today, like an hour ago, I was really disappointed. You know, the only thing is get a hold of family, because we don't want to go storming in there. You know, police are bad for that. Let's just storm in and take care of something. That's what they pay us for. So Sheila, 
you said you've been researching this for years, right? A couple years at least. Are you are you comfortable handing this off now as a as a task? It's all theirs. <laughs> Because I, I I think it's pretty extraordinary that um, that you you've done this much research and and driven people's attention towards this. Considering that this is just a question that you have, you're not related to Frank. You're you're not related to people in the like police he's service. Big brother now. <laughs> I just something I just got to do. Um, yeah. And are are you guys ready to to sort of like take that on as like okay, she's she's Sheila's done her bit. Now we hand now now she hands it over to you guys. Yes. And I'll see you again, October 17, 2018. Yep. 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 Uh, Sergeant Hawthorne, just I, I just want to ask you one more question. Um, you mentioned that that it. Uh, it personally affected you going to that site and seeing that the grave was not marked. Can you tell me why that is? One of the one of the first things I did as a police officer was go to uh, Constable Ferrone's funeral, and 25 years later, go to Dan Woodall's funeral. And we dedicate, as we should, a lot of resources and time and, and money to parks and streets and buildings in honor of the, the men and women who have, have sacrificed everything to keep the peace. And to see, to stand in that row of graves and see nothing. To have his grave be unmarked is uh, dishonors his sacrifice, even if he was only a member for five minutes. Thank you for sharing that. So listeners, you heard it here. Sergeant David Hawthorne is on the case, and we have a deadline. October 17th, 2018. 100 years after Frank's death, the first police officer killed in the line of duty in Edmonton should finally have a gravestone. A couple more points that Sheila Thomas found out. There was an internal police investigation after Frank Beavers was killed to see if the police force had been negligent in what happened that day. The police commission exonerated the force. Judge Taylor, one of the commission members, said, quote, It is easy to speculate afterwards what one might or might not have done under the circumstances, but I believe Inspector Haig could not have done anything more. He could not have taken more men with him. There were no more men available at the time to take. Unquote. There was a murderer on the loose, and the police had a tip about his location and a limited window of time to catch him. Edmonton's mayor of the day agreed that the police did the best they could with what they had. Thanks for listening to Let's Find Out. I love hearing what you guys think of the show, and I want your questions about Edmonton history. Drop me a line at chris at letsfindoutpodcast.com. You can listen to the rest of our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and letsfindoutpodcast.com. Okay, thank you time. Thank you to Sheila Thomas for bringing this question to me. 
Thank you to Carolyn Marin, Jeff Awad, and Sergeant David Hawthorne at the Edmonton Police Service. To the folks at the City of Edmonton Archives for their research help. Thanks to the Edmonton Historical Board and the Edmonton Heritage Council for supporting this podcast. To everyone who's been supporting it, especially Finn. Original music for this podcast is by the really lovely human being, Doug Hoyer. Artwork for our logo by Andrea Hergy at Mount Pioneer Design. And before I go, one more reminder about our live podcast taping on Saturday, March 11th. Let's find out how we know what's true. That's March 11th at the Needle Vinyl Tavern. Tickets are 15 bucks in advance. They're at yeglive.ca. The Needle is a beautiful venue. I'm so excited. Please send me your questions for our panelists about how they do their history research. Again, I'm at chris at letsfindoutpodcast.com. Just email me along with your receipt so I know you're coming. And that awesome detective ad at the beginning of the show, thanks to Joe Hartfile at my day job, CJSR 88.5 FM, for producing that. All right, that's it for this month. I'm Chris Chang and Phillips. Until next time, keep your questions coming.